And so this morning we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews together, specifically chapters 11 and 12. And so I want to begin by giving you an introduction, perhaps some of you are less familiar. Hebrew, unlike a lot of the books in the New Testament, it wasn't written directly toward a specific church or group of people necessarily. Uh, it, it's not a letter as much as it's, a, it's really a sermon. Uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. There's a lot of speculation. Scholars sort of have some educated guesses, but at the end of the day, the reality is we simply don't know. What we do know is it was written, written in the first century. Uh, we know this because the uh, church father, Clement of uh, Alexandria, actually mentioned it to uh, his letter to Corinth in 95 AD. We think it was likely written uh, before the destruction of the temple uh, in 70 AD because it would have likely mentioned that had that already occurred. So if it wasn't written in Paul's lifetime, it was surely written in, in Timothy's lifetime. And what we do know is that uh, the, the writer of, of Hebrews was a new Timothy. Well, we know it was a first uh, relation with the apostles. So it was the apostles' teaching that uh, he's presented. And it, it, the phrase, it says, the, the author calls it a work of exhortation in, in, in uh, chapter 13, a work of exhortation. That phrase in the Greek, uh, best translated, means a word of encouragement. And so it's essentially, it's a sermon. And it's a sermon written to encourage people. And it has primarily two reasons, which one is to encourage Christians not to give up. And the other is to encourage them not to abandon their faith. To warn them, keep maturing in Christ. Keep, keep persevering. Keep marching on. Don't give up. Don't abandon the faith. The author emphasizes faithfulness, love, and sound doctrine. It's very much rooted in, in, in Scripture and who Christ was. Uh, uh, makes a lot of attention to, to bring to our attention who Jesus was, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, how much better Christ was than the old system of the law and sacrifice. So I said a moment ago, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but of course, we do ultimately know who wrote it, don't we? God wrote it. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Some translations say all Scripture is God-breathed. It comes out of him for us. It's written to his church. And it's profitable for doctrine, for an understanding about the nature of God, about right and wrong, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just say it's about, you know, it's about knowledge for the sake of knowledge. It's about knowing about God for the sake of that. No, he continues and says, so that the man of God, the person of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it, it's not just, again, it's not just so we know things and so we can, you know, win at Bible trivia, which we did, I think. But it's so we know things... <laughs> So we know things so that we can minister, so that we can be equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1, 21. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Spirit. Jamie likes to say, men held the pens and God held their hearts. Proverbs 30, verse 5. I love this. Every word of God is pure, and he is a shield to those who put their trust in him. And so the letter of Hebrews was a sermon written to encourage Christians, in spite of what you may see around you, don't give up. Keep going. 
mature in the faith. And so, it's, you know, we know how God's work speaks to all people at all times, but how specifically does that still speak to us, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years later, right? And so this morning, I trust that this word will speak to us and do what it needs to do, encourage, challenge, convict, and ultimately equip us to minister his gospel, amen? So before we pray, take a moment, say hi to somebody near you, and then we'll begin. Lord, we come before you grateful to be anchored in your word, to have your spirit. Father, would you do now what none of us can, God? Would you change us from the inside out, God? Would you you meet us here? Would you speak deeply to our hearts, our spirits? Father, would you help none of us leave here the same way we came in? So give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to receive your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, in chapter 12, the author talks about our need to continue enduring amidst persecution and the trials of life. Again, we know that that Hebrews was written by somebody who had a relationship with the disciples who were around Jesus, and that it's anchored in the teaching of the apostles. We can tell that the people he was writing to appear to have grown less attention to Christian instruction. We see that in chapter 5. Apparently, they've ceased regular attending at their meetings. We see that in chapter 10. So in other words, it's a sermon written to encourage people in the midst of difficulty because what they found is they stopped listening to God. They stopped reading the Bibles. Stopped coming to church. Stopped attending group. Stopped doing the very things that nurture and fulfill us. And what do we do, right? That's what we do. We, you know, the worst thing in the world we can do when we're struggling is isolate. And that's the enemy's strategy, isn't it? Keep us away from the things that nurture us, from the things that God wants to use to fill us. So this, this was written, and it was written to encourage people, don't give up. You know, don't stop going to church. Don't stop reading the word. Persevere, continue in the community of faith. See that God is working. I love, um, I love when people say Christianity is a crutch. Anybody ever tell you that? Christianity is a crutch. If by crutch you mean something that helps you walk right, then yeah, you're right. Amen, it is. It's not my fault. Some people recognize that they can't walk right on their own, but it absolutely is a crutch. And the interesting, interesting thing is a lot of times the people that tell you that are like, you know, a cigarette hanging out of the mouth, scratching a scratch ticket, glass of whatever. Yeah, it's a crutch, you know, it's for weak people. Okay, thanks for the advice. Appreciate that. Often people disparage Christianity to make themselves feel better. The important thing to mention is these words of encouragement and exhortation are very much rooted in the teaching of Jesus Christ, that the Son of God became our heavenly high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice once and for all, that Christ obtained for us salvation, that those who approach him in faith, in authentic faith, will persevere until it receives the promised reward. 
that he who began a good work in you will continue it until he comes again. This means we walk it out together until the Lord comes again or until we're with him in heaven. So before we get to the main text of our lesson, which is chapter 12, I want us to read through, I'm going to read through quickly chapter 11. And now I want us to recognize, I mean, read through the book of Hebrews, but definitely read chapter 11 and 12. But I want, I want to quickly read through it, and I want you to notice a phrase you're going to hear over and over again. And Paul alludes to this in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul says what? We walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, it's not about our abilities, but it's about his ability. I'm going to read from the ESV. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That means the element of, of faith is assurance, is hope, is conviction. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteousness. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going, and I love that. He went out not knowing where he was going. Because sometimes God gives us enough light to see the next step. Sometimes we take that first step in the dark. But by faith, it's easier to have faith when we can see the the map, right? When we know where we're going. But sometimes the Lord asks us to step out into the unknown by faith. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So you notice again and again in our text, by faith these people were commended. Their faith was commended by God. They were known as faithful people. And their their focus was on something else, on somewhere else, on a heavenly place. They lived within sight of that eternal reward. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. I love that. By faith, she she. By faith, she received the power to conceive. She considered him faithful who had promised. By faith. See, I know that the world likes to say it's good to have faith, but it's only good to have faith if the object of your faith merits that. Faith in and of itself is not good. It's neutral. It's what you have faith in that matters. If I have faith that I can jump out a window 
and fly, I'm quickly going to find out that that doesn't work. If you have a friend, every time they see you, they say, hey, give me 10 bucks, so I pay it back next time I see you. And you give them the 10 bucks, yeah, I got faith he's going to pay me back. Well, that's not going to work out. If I'm going to sit on a chair and it only has three legs, in my case, it could have four legs and we got a little faith there, but three legs, I could have faith, but the chair is not going to hold me. So it wasn't their faith that was commendable. It was the object of their faith. It was him in whom their faith was placed. So Sarah had faith because she knew, I have faith in a God who keeps his promises. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers strangers and exiles on the earth. I want to point out how powerful this is. Because in other words, they saw glimpses of the promises of God while they were on the journey, while they were walking with him, but they recognized that they were meant for another place. That means that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of evil, and evil is just the It's just the absence of good. In the midst of all the things going on, we can see glimpses. We can see good. We can see God's people working. But it's only a foretaste. It's only a glimpse of what is to come. That place where there's no more mourning, no more death, no more crying and pain, no war or famine or pandemics or school shootings. It's faith in that that place that we know will we'll, we'll live. It's, it's realizing that we are strangers and exiles here that we're just passing through. Verse 14 says, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, they didn't look back. And sometimes I've seen people go back to the most difficult circumstances to the most unhealthy circumstances because they're familiar with it. It's, it's amazing what we can get comfortable with. But people would rather, would rather walk back to what is known to be destructive than walk forward in faith not knowing what it's going to look like. By faith, don't look back. Look forward. Don't look to yesterday. It says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. It clarifies that Old Testament story, doesn't it? A lot of times people don't read that in Hebrews 11 and see the connection that Abraham was not only acting in faith when he was offering to sacrifice his son, but he knew, like Sarah, he had faith that God keeps his promises, and God said, through this son, the promise will be fulfilled. So Abraham said, well, if he's asking me to sacrifice him, and I know he's going to fulfill his promises, then he must be going to raise him from the dead. Because he had faith in the one who promised. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head 
of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because he saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. I love this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called son of the Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking toward that reward. In other words, he would rather identify in suffering with the people of God than forsake Christ for all the treasures in the world. What a testimony, right? By faith. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets who through their faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, they were destitute, they were afflicted, they were mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And then it says this, verses 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So, so we just read chapter 11. We read about the heroes of the faith. We read all about their faithfulness. And then it says, and though some of these were commended through their faith, or some translations say, or these having obtained a good testimony through faith. In other words, God knew they were faithful and recognized them as such. Everyone around them knew they were faithful and recognized them as such. They did what they were supposed to do. The scripture just mentioned not only their heroic deeds by faith, but continues to talk again and again of them even being willing to give up their life. And just in case, you know, just in case we needed the graphic details and just doesn't just say they were killed for their faith, it kind of tells us how, right? Doesn't it? I maybe made it, put an asterisk and read for more details about how they would. No, they were sawn in two. They were flogged by faith. They did all these things, and even when the tables turned, even when it was difficult, they faced death. And then, and then it says they didn't receive the promise, since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Don't miss this. 
Because what the author is saying is that with Jesus, new possibilities came. That when Jesus came with him, the gospel, the good news, church, that we can be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, that we can partake in the fruits of the Spirit. That means it's not about what you can do or you can't do or I can do or I can't do. It's about he can and what he will do in and through us. Amen? It's not about our past. I was talking the other day with Dave Daniels. I, you know, a lot of times people know my like 25 years and, and forward past, but Dave and I had a, a lot of time together. And we, we went back. We went, it was like full testimony. And I love sharing my testimony because sometimes it's easy to forget just how completely lost, wretched, wretched, stupid that I was. Sometimes it's easy to forget the power of God to change a man. You know, and I've said before, you know, the world says, oh, you want to be the best you you can be? I don't want to be the best me I can be. I don't want you to be the best you you can be because that's a far cry from who Jesus is. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be who he is and who he wants me to be. And when we share our testimony, we remember how far we were And we're reminded that if in that moment he can change me, he can change anybody. I was listening to somebody the other day, and I I get the the sentiment, and I've heard people repeat this before, but they say, you know, God's a gentleman. I don't know. It can be. Wasn't a gentleman to Paul knocking him off the horse. God will invade. He will will wreck your life to get your attention. He He will invade. He will come in and change everything. And, I, and again, I understand the sentiment. We've got to respond. We've got to be willing and open. But man, God will do it. It's by faith in Christ. It could have said in Christ and, the, and listed that. So when people tell your story someday and my story someday, I want it to begin with by faith in Christ, Brian, whatever. Because it doesn't matter. We can do nothing apart from him. It reminds us of the possibilities we now have in Christ. See, you've got to recognize that back then, the system they had, I mean, they received eternal life. But as far, in the, as far as the here and now, it was a blessing and curse system. Do the right thing, you're blessed. Do the wrong thing, you're cursed. And with the system of the law, with a sacrifice, constant sacrifice, every time they sacrificed, they were reminded of what they couldn't do, what the law didn't have the power to do in them. And so they made a sacrifice because they recognized they were a slave to their nature. That was the system. This is why Hebrews is so deeply theological, because what what we're going to get into in chapter 12, it's all grounded in this. When he says, look, Look what they did by faith, not even having Jesus. And then recognize what we can do now that we do. By faith, in him, in and through him. See, we have the power through Christ to bring the kingdom of heaven here and now on earth. That means we're his hands and feet. That means the spirit works through us. The best they could do is follow God's law by faith and be commended by God and other people that they were faithful, but they were powerless. And because Christ has came, everything's changed now. Everything has changed. It was impossible for the law 
to change who they were. The law didn't have power to change lives. You know, and, and I, don't, I don't disparage, you know, AA, those groups at all. I have nothing bad to say. They say a lot of, help a lot of people. But one thing I never agreed with, and when I used to go to meetings years ago, and people would say, hi, my name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. And I would, I would always say, well, hi, my name is Brian. I struggle with drugs and alcohol, whatever. And then people would say, you know, you really should identify. I said, look, I am the last person who's embarrassed about anything I've done. I'll tell you all the stories. But I don't see anywhere in the Bible where I need to identify with my sin. I see in the Bible where it says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. I see in the Bible it says, I'm created in the image of God. So yes, I'm strong with addiction, but he's able to set me free. By faith, I walk free from drugs and alcohol today because of Jesus Christ. Our identities changed. See, in the old days, the best, again, the best you can hope for is, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to do the right thing, and when I don't, I'm going to make a sacrifice to atone for my sin. John Piper says that, that the grace of God provides the pardon, but it also provides the power. Yes, we're pardoned from sin, and we're empowered not to do the same thing. So being sorry means not feeling bad. It means living different. Over and over again, when you fall, you get up and you do it again. I've preached before. Sometimes we, we think repentance is, you know, sometimes we're just sorry for the effects of our sin. We're sorry that we got pulled over when we were speeding. We're sorry that we got caught doing the wrong thing. We're not sorry that we did it. We're sorry somebody found out. That's not repentance. That's just fear of repercussion. True repentance is, I sinned against a holy God. And if nobody else saw, I did. And so, Lord, forgive me. And what does the scripture say? He's faithful to forgive. And he cleanses us, making us white as snow. Amen. When Jesus came, that which was impossible for the law became possible in him. I mean, that's something to say amen about. It's the power of God in our lives. So now on to our main text, and it was important that we laid the groundwork because the first verse in chapter 12, it says, therefore, and we've heard, and you've heard me say before in seminary, we learned if it says therefore, it's there for a reason. And therefore was in light of what you just read, considering what you just read, because of everything you read, because of recognizing what those heroes of faith were able to do focused on eternity with God and focused on knowing who he was and resting in his promises and still didn't receive. Now you who have Christ, and now that's what we're going to get into. So it's important that we understand all that stuff in chapter 11 because that just is in the list of, oh, look what, you know, Abraham was amazing and, and, you know, Joseph was amazing. No, that's Jesus was amazing and Jesus was amazing and Jesus, you know, it's the power of God working in people's lives. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the title of my message. This morning, who are you surrounded by? And it's a question that's both literal and rhetorical. It's literal in the sense that who are you surrounded by? Who are you influenced by? Who do you allow to speak into your life? What, what voices are you hearing? Who's around you? 
Who are you becoming like by spending time with? And it's a rhetorical in the sense of who are you surrounded by? A great cloud of witnesses. Heroes in the faith and heroes in looking around and seeing the testimonies of other people. And now I recognize that's powerful, seeing other people's testimony. Paul preached and he pointed to himself and he pointed to other people and that's powerful. But a lot of people stop there. I'll never forget, I was cutting my grass not long ago and a guy was driving by on his bike, a friend of mine from you know, church. And I saw him, he pulled in my driveway and threw his bike down and just kind of walked towards me. I'm on like my lawnmower, you know? I shut it off and, and tears running down his eyes. And he said, man, I saw you. I just wanted to come and give you a hug. He said, every time I see you, I just, I'm so proud of you. And it's amazing what God's done in your life. And I wish I could have that. I said, brother, I don't know if you think God did it in my life because of me, but let me, let me, trust me when I tell you, I'm the least remarkable, but he's the most remarkable. And he wants to do the same thing in your life. So in testimonies of somebody else can encourage us, but like King David said, taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good. Don't rely on somebody else's testimony. When you hear about the testimonies of people of faith, don't just look at that and go, oh, that was amazing for them. Look at that and say, God, in the midst of what I'm going through, would you show up? Because every prayer is twofold, right? It's Jesus in Gethsemane, every prayer. Lord, take this cup from me. Change my situation. Give me what I need. Make things different. Fine, pray that. And sometimes he does. But the second part is, but if not, your will be done, not mine. But if not, if it's not gonna look the way I think it should look or I want it to look, I'm still gonna persevere. I'm still gonna follow you. Would you just be with me? Would I feel your presence and your power? That's real praying. Witnesses are there to encourage us to point to the power of God but not for us to think that that's only for them. And I, I know, I get it, that some of you have had people speak negativity into your life for years. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a parent, and maybe they said, you're no good, you're never gonna be anything, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says your story is gonna say, by faith you overcame, by faith you are used of God. Don't let the enemy write the story for you that God wants to write. And I know sometimes we feel, we feel like we're not worth it and you know, we're, you know all those things. But he thinks we're worth it. He thought you were worth dying on the cross for. So by faith, let's together, together walk it out. Not alone, church. Together, since we are surrounded by a community of faith that's vibrant, that's authentic. There's a lot of amazing thing that, things that God's doing in this church. And whenever I speak to anybody, past, other pastors or leaders, always the thing I'm most proud of is you know how many adults we have in community groups? You know how many people come to our community groups? And you know half of them have never been in one before? And you know each week we see new people, but you know what I love? The, the best testimony of what God's doing is people say, I've never been in a group before, but I'm part of a group, and, and I never knew church could be like this, and it's changing my life. There's power in Christ-centered community. You can't do it alone. 
What breaks my heart as a pastor is when, we're, we're, and it happens all the time, you're in a group with somebody and then like, you know, they, they, they come and they pray about something they just went through or they'll share about, yeah, these last two weeks and, and they talk about something they went through by themselves. And they talk about it after it's over for whatever reason. I, I get there's a whole bunch of reasons psychologically we do that. Like we isolate, we think we're gonna do it on our own and then if we get through it, if we get through it, we come back and we tell the, the whole group the testimony. But I'm like, well, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell us so we could have walked with you, so we could have prayed with you through it? Not just when you get to the end. We need to be real with each other. We need each other. There's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. We're called to be part of a community. That's why this keeps saying, let us. Let us. And the first thing here, it says, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which, every sin which clings so closely. Love Jesus, hate sin. And I, this quote is in every, probably every sermon I preach, but I love it because it's a great reminder. Lennon Ravenhill says, a sinning man stops praying. And a praying man stops sinning. And it's a reminder not of what we can do, but of what he can do. And Paul in his letter to Galatians said, you foolish Galatians, what began in the spirit, are you now trying to continue in the flesh? So we know it's by grace you've been saved, and then what? By your own abilities you're sanctified? It's by grace you've been saved, and then your talent and your abilities is going to get you the rest of the way. No, it's by grace you're being sanctified day by day as you submit and surrender to him working in you. So the best advice I give to people when they're going through stuff is keep going through it. Don't give up. Stand and let him fight for you. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. Share your struggle with the group. Go through it together. Paul writes in Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Hold fast, hold tight, cling to what is good and throw off the weight. And Willie mentioned it in his prayer and it breaks my heart because I know some of you, you come in these doors and you have this burden, this weight, this pressure, this guilt and you're here and you feel free in the presence of God, and you worship. And then on your way out the door, you grab that burden and you put it right back on and you walk out with it. Don't do that. Don't do that. You're not here because somebody invited you here. You're not here because this is just what you do on Sunday. You're here because God wants to speak this word to each of us. So if you look at what they could do by faith without Christ, imagine what we can do by faith in Christ. At the end of the service, the worship team is going to play longer. And you can be dismissed quietly, or you can stick around, but come to the altar literally and figuratively. Leave the burden. Leave the baggage. Don't come and leave the same way. You came in. Let us lay aside every weight, every sin, every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance. 
with perseverance, without giving up the race set before us. Like Paul tells Timothy, fight the fight, run the race, keep the faith. Don't give up. Keep going. When I was a teenager, and life's, life's tough, and when you're a teenager, it's, it's a tough time. It's, it's hard to be a teenager. When you're a teenager, at least it seems that it's like the toughest part of life. And my mother, who's here, I'm not going to look over there, gave me this book with a poem in it when I was about 16 or 17. And I memorized it. And I've never forgotten it. And it says, when things go wrong as they sometimes will, when the road you're traveling seems all uphill, when your funds are low and your debts are high, (laughs) and you want to smile, but instead you cry, when care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you must, but don't you quit. Life is odd with its twists and turns, as every one of us sometimes learns. And many a failure turns about when he might have won, had he stuck it out. So though, don't give up, though the pace seems slow, you may succeed with another blow. Success is failure turned inside out, the silver tint of the clouds of doubt. And you never know how close you are. It may be near when it seems so far. So stick to the fight when your heart is hit. It's when things seem worse that you must not quit. Now that's a nice little reminder and it's encouraged me over the years. But we have more than words. We have more than nice little reminders. We have more than emotional poems to motivate us. We have the power not to quit in Jesus Christ. And so going back to that previous verse, verse one, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But there's no period at the end of that. It continues looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So he made the way, he perfects the way, he works in us, he makes it happen. And so if you came today and you feel like you can't do it anymore, you're right. You've come to the right place. This message is for you and for all of us. You can't do it. You never could. Christianity is a crutch. It's going to help you walk right. Because your whole life you've been hobbling around and God wants to say, I want to empower you to walk the way I've called you to walk. And we need to be reminded of what he went through in order for us to make this new life possible. It says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do not grow weary. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? He said, in case you need more to encourage you, in case looking at what the heroes of the faith did, recognizing who God was, in case you you don't realize the power you have in Christ, 
In case you're growing weary despite all that, consider him and what he went through for you and me. And he didn't give up. He persevered because he loved us. I heard it said once that when Jesus was on the cross, he looked down and he saw your face and he saw my face. You know, nobody likes discipline. I did a whole talk one time on, on, on discipline. And the word discipline used to always have a positive connotation. Like he's a disciplined athlete. She's disciplined in her, you know, in practicing her instrument. You know, discipline was a good thing. The, the, the word, the definition is to be trained up. So if you're disciplined, you're trained. It's positive. It was good. We heard the word discipline, and what happens? We think of punishment. We think of, we think of punishment. And, and, and as much as we recognize, I recognize that I would not be a good father if I didn't discipline their, my children. Maybe they would have liked me more at some point in their lives, but I wouldn't have loved them if I didn't discipline them. I, discipline is to train them, to help them live in a certain way, to, to show them what's right. And, and when we try to discipline our kids and they resist or they, they, they throw a tantrum, we look at it and it's like, look, you know, you're, you're being immature, you're pouting. And then God tries to discipline us. and like, I don't want to be disciplined. I don't need any discipline. I've heard some of you say once, I listen, I listen to God, I just don't listen to any of the people he places in my life. Yeah, that is not how that works. And, and you got to understand that when I say discipline within the context of the church, and because I know people have been harmed, it's always restorative. It's always rehabilitative. Christian discipline is never punitive. God will punish. He's just. But in all of the Bible, in all of the New Testament, discipline is meant to correct. It's meant to admonish. The, the most extreme form of discipline Paul exercised in the New Testament is to banish somebody from the church only if it's harmful to them or others in the body. And when he does that, he says, let's all pray for them that they come to their senses and come back to the fold. So it is never to hurt. It is never to tear down. And sadly, people, that's been their experience, but that is not New Testament discipline. So it says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. In other words, he's trying to encourage people that have have stopped in their faith for whatever reason. They've forgotten the testimonies of people. They've forgotten the power of Christ. Things have gotten difficult. Or maybe somebody said or did something, they heard something, I didn't like that. And they, you know, Pastor did something, I didn't like that. Or I heard something, I didn't like that. I'm going to go somewhere else. And they, they'll say, no, 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 no. Let, let somebody speak life. Re- receive, listen. If it doesn't apply, great. Throw it out. Be gracious. And if it does, and more often than not, the stuff that bothers us the most is the stuff that applies, right? But the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, it's because he cares for you. It's because he loves us that he disciplines us. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best. And Listen to this, because this is the whole thing. For he disciplines us for our own good that we may share in his holiness. 
In other words, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the power of God, the people of God is to help us to flourish, to live toward what is best. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, a lot of times bad stuff happens Struggles happen, something happens, and, and we either run toward God into his arms and we find his power and peace in his presence, or we run away from him. And when you run away from God, that's not morally neutral. You don't just run away from him. You run to something else, to someone else or something else. And at best, it distracts you. And at worst, it destroys you. And it's the strategy of the enemy. So when things happen that make you uncomfortable, grow. Grow. Because if you're comfortable, you're not growing. And if you're growing, you're not comfortable. That's one of the themes I preach all the time. I have to preach in my own life. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. I love that. In other words, stop pouting. Don't be a child. Stop kicking and screaming in the store because you're not getting what you want because you're embarrassing yourself. That's what he's saying. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Use the crutch, amen? Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then it says, see to that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness strings up, springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. In other words, don't be negative. Don't invite other people into your misery. If you're not going to receive whatever God has for you, if you're going to rebel and persist in rebellion, do it by yourself. Don't complain and backbite. and you know, Because you know who you're poisoning the most? You're poisoning people around you. You're, you're damaging instead of building up a culture. But it's yourself. You drank poison. It's yourself. It's your heart. Don't do that. Bitterness will destroy you. Unforgiveness will destroy you. Destroy you. And then it says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And I love this. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. That's a sermon in and of itself. Know what he's saying? Don't trade temporary satisfaction. I'm going to have the worship team come up. Don't trade immediate pleasure or gratification. Don't do what may seem right in the moment or may seem convenient in the moment, but it's the wrong thing because you're going to rob yourself of joy. Don't exchange momentary pleasure for the lasting peace you can have in Jesus Christ. For you know that afterward, verse 17, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected and he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. When he gave up what he gave up, it was too late to get it back. Now in God's grace and mercy, we've given up a whole bunch of times and he still wants to give it to us. He still wants to receive. But here's the thing. You're here today. You're here right now in this moment. Tomorrow's not promised. You walk out this door, 
The next few minutes are not promised. So don't say, well, you know, I know, Pastor Ryan, let me really, I'm going to think about this. You said a lot of stuff. Let me, you know, let me, someday, I mean, I got some stuff that's going to work out next week, next time, next month. I got this going on. Next time, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to start working in this. Today. Today. Allow God to take from you what he wants to take so that he can give you what he wants to give you. And I guarantee you it's not the burden you came in here with. You can read the rest of chapter 12 on your own, but I want to read through the last verse in closing. This was the message a couple weeks ago, right? Therefore, there's that word again. Therefore, because of all I've just told you, be grateful. Be grateful. Be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. For being partakers in a, in a new world, in an improved world. A kingdom that can't be shaken. Because the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the people of God. Amen? And you can allow or you can disallow the enemy to prevail in your life. Or you can claim victory in Jesus. Because the kingdom Jesus is building will stand. And it says, so then, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And so as the worship team closes, the altars are open. It's up to you. I've said before, your past is not going to get in the way of God doing what he wants to do. Your pride will. Paul tells us in Romans 12, what's acceptable to God to offer and worship ourselves. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy, holy and pleasing to God. He wants all of us, church. And if you give him only 99%, that 1% that the enemy still holds, that your flesh still holds, will cause turmoil, and you'll have one foot in one world and one foot in the other and you'll be divided. But if you say, Lord, you can have all of me. Do what you want to do. Watch. You watch what he does. And I promise you, no one's ever come out to me and said, you know, I really regret surrendering it all to Jesus. But a lot of people have come to me and said, I really regret not surrendering it all to Jesus. It's up to you, church.